bring you greetings from Sister Church in Dallas, First Baptist Church of Dallas. We are privileged at ICR to be in worship services across the country uh, often, and I never tire of visiting other churches. Thank you for letting us be here this morning and worshiping with you. Everywhere I go, I am amazed that the Lord provides uh, capable pastors, beautiful musicians, lovely people. It is a delight to be able to share with you this morning. And as your pastor said, one of our jobs uh, collectively as uh, children of the kingdom is to be able to give an answer to those who ask us of a reason of the hope that's in us. And so I've been asked this morning to give you some basic reasons that may help you articulate something about this issue of why we need to address this uh, rather controversial thing of a creator God. By the way, we this little booklet, Five Reasons to Believe in Recent Creation, I think we have some copies. Joel, is that correct? We have uh, copies available for folks out there? In the... Ah, okay, thank you. They never tell me anything. <laughs> but we have some booklets that are available without charge to you this morning, and those of you who are not on our mailing list will certainly want to sign up. We try to provide a monthly uh, issue called Acts and Facts that uh, is, uh, I think, very helpful. It's given without charge. We don't try to do subscriptions. We don't even send you very often very requests for money. So it's just one of the things the Lord allows us to provide for you. Be sure you stop by the table out there. So let's uh, kind of look at it from a basic standpoint. The reason I'm putting this first is because, uh, at least in this auditorium, I would suspect that most of us would agree that God has revealed himself to us. And if he is indeed the God who says about himself he is omnipotent and omniscient and without flaw, without error, then we ought to be careful what we do with his revelation to us. And I would suggest that his revelation is pretty clear about this very fundamental and foundational issue Let's make sure we just grasp the significance of this. The, uh, the opening chapter of Genesis is unique in all of religious literature. As near as I can tell, there are about 300 Bibles, uh, like the Bhagavadas and the Koran and the Book of Mormon and so on. None of them begin with this statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. So it's sort of a unique statement, a, a declarative statement, really where he says, I did this, and I want to, you to know about it because you can't comprehend it. Let me tell you what I did. And when he finishes, he said, this is, this is good. This is exactly the way I wanted it to be. Now, in case you've missed something, it's not that way now. So something surely happened to make it not good over the time. And if you read on in the second and the third chapter of the book of Genesis, we're told that the very first responsible agents that he put here on this planet defied their creator and said, we can do a better job of running things ourselves. God said, okay, have at it, and withdrew himself. And the process of God withdrawing, we loosely call death now. When God, who is life, removes himself from that which he has created, and things begin to fall apart. And ultimately, the ultimate fall apartness, we call dead because it doesn't work anymore. And when we find that information surrounding us, we struggle with a way to explain what's there. So 
Let me start with some basic reasons. The Bible really tells us that God did this very quickly. It wasn't over billions of years. It wasn't an experiment. He divided the light from the darkness on that first day, set the planet in rotation in some fashion, and gave us that formula, even giving us a name for now that are very common usages, the light portion he called day and the dark portion he called night. And that cycle of night and day, night and day, is something that we just sort of take for granted. But God sets it in motion on the first day and says, this is why you're experiencing this. I did it this way. And every single day, he repeats this same formula. It's kind of like he went out of his way to make sure you understood that this is exactly what he did. Now, it's not poetic. It's not designed to be some sort of a hymn or a song or an allegory. It's just a statement of fact. We're used to propositional textbooks and information that we gain, and this is exactly written the same way. So when he talks about this 24-hour cycle... He's not introducing something that we don't know about, but he's introducing something that is unique, that he did it. We can't do it that way today. We don't have the ability. We can't understand it. And when we don't like to think about a God who has that ability, then really what we do is attempt to write God out of the story with another story. We try to put another explanation in there. Today we give that story a name. We call it naturalism or uniformitarianism or the more common name, evolution. The things just sort of evolved over long periods of time. But from a biblical perspective, there just really isn't any other way to make it more clear. I did it every day, just exactly like I said it did. And when he completed the cycle, he said, this is done. I'm through making new things. When the heavens and earth were done, all the host of them, that includes, by the way, the stars and the angelic creation, he said it was finished, and he stopped working, and he rested on this seventh cycle, this seventh cycle of night and day. Many, many centuries later, when the theologians of Israel were debating with the Lord Jesus, they had made all kinds of rules and regulations about the seventh day, and they had all kinds of things you were supposed to do on the Sabbath day, And Jesus said to these rather legalistic sort of folks, he said, look, you're missing the point. I did not make you for the Sabbath. I made this rest day for you. I designed it into the creation. I knew what you were going to be like, and I designed the structure of the creation so that you would work for six and rest for one. And he even put it into a law when he blessed it, hallowed it, that's the terminology in the scripture, because he had rested from all that he had done. And so when he gave commandments centuries later and put them in order for us, he said, I want you to remember this rest day. By the way, just for those of you who are confused a bit, the word Sabbath does not mean Saturday. It has never meant Saturday. The word is rest. It doesn't even mean seven. It just means rest. So when he says, I want you to remember this rest day, because this is the cycle I set in motion when I created things. I worked for six, and I rested on number seven. And because I did this, I want you to know that in six days, I made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that exists in them. And then I rested on this seventh day. Therefore... 
the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, in that context, it can only mean an ordinary day because there wasn't any of this issue about billions and billions of years. There was just simply the statement of God who wrote these with his own finger, by the way. Let me just make that point. We say the scripture is inspired. God breathed out this total accuracy, this total authority into the affairs of men and inspired the scriptures. But this portion of the scripture is inscribed, written with God's own finger. So it's pretty important when he says, look, this is a, a design feature. I made it this way, and I want you to remember that. There's no hint of these ages anywhere in the Bible. Now, please understand that the only reason you have to have billions of years is because it sort of sounds, well, it kind of makes sense. Anything could happen in, well, maybe you're old enough to remember Carl Sagan. He used to say it this way, billions and billions of years. You've got to wave your hands a little bit when you say this because it's so huge you just can't get a handle on it. If we've got these billions and billions of years out there, sort of anything can happen. But God says, no, that's really not true. I did it actually pretty recent. And everything we know about the Bible, there's a lot of history in the scriptures. There are the birth records and there are cities and so on. All of these things are pretty easy to understand. And just as you'd expect, they all add up to thousands, not billions. So everything in the biblical record, everything, no exceptions, no exclusions, everything that's in the biblical record talks about a relatively young. Now, I've got to put this in context. 6,000 years is a pretty long time. I mean, think about this a minute. When we talk about ancient history, we talk about Egypt and things like that. That was about 4,000 years ago, and we say, ooh. But then when we see a dinosaur, all the billions and billions of years, and we just don't even think about it very much. But really, in our context... Well, if you live to be a hundred, you're really old, right? Before the flood, they lived to be nine hundred years old for Christ. I don't know why anybody would want to live nine hundred. But everything we know about the scriptures, everything we see in the record, everything that we see in God's revelation to us, that this creation was an instantaneous thing, accomplished by God's spoken word, by the word of the Lord, the scripture says, the heavens were made. By his breath, by his command, these things were brought into existence. You're to praise him because he commanded. They were created. This is a theme you see throughout the scriptures. It's not just onesies or twosies. And when the Lord Jesus was here, by the way, one of the things that he did during his public ministry of about three years and odd months was to do what we call today miracles. Some of them were sort of ordinary. But many of them were miracles that would require creation. And when he did those special miracles, he would say frequently, you, you may not listen to what I'm telling you, although I am telling you the words that God the Father told me to tell you. Maybe you don't want to listen to what I say, but look at what I'm doing. Let the things that I'm doing show you who I am. The whole Gospel of John, that's the kind of the gospel that everybody uses to be a gospel gospel. You know, it's the, it's the one that focuses on the salvation message more than any other passage of Scripture. And it's built around seven great miracles of creation. It opens up 
with, in the beginning was the Word. You remember that passage? God is the one who made all these things. And the very first miracle that Jesus did when he was entering his public ministry was to change the water into wine. Do you remember that? That was a marriage feast. It was not unusual. They had just started. They were at this kind of public gathering. And they, well, in those days, they didn't do like we do. We, they didn't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on weddings. They just let them go on for several days at a time. And usually they provided an awful lot of uh, liquid refreshments that would make them forget how long they'd been at the place. And they ran out of the, uh, the wine, excuse me, uh, in this particular place. And his mother said, now look, they're having trouble. They ran out of the drink, so why don't you help them out? Do you remember this? Surely you do. This is in John's Gospel, chapter 2. So I've got to ask the question as kind of a scientist. I want to know what happened here, what really took place. You know what this is, of course? This is H2O. Do you see that? That's water, right? Everybody knows the molecules of water. That's pretty simple stuff. And he had told the servants to fill up these six very large sort of huge vases. They contained about 50 gallons apiece. Of just fill them up with water. Now you can see these servants running back and forth, filling them up with what they knew was water. And I can hear them whispering to themselves, what in the world is going on here? Because they knew they were running out of the wine and this guy was saying, fill them up with water. And then he said to them, now take a pitcher and take it to the head of the marriage supper, the governor of the feast. Uh, do you remember what happened? Remember when they poured the wine now, this water that had been changed into wine, and he took a drink of it and said, boy, this is good stuff. Do you remember that? Because he said, usually what you do is put the good stuff out first and everybody's drunk and doesn't know any better than you put out the cheap Thunderbird junk. <laughs> but this was the good stuff. So here was this very exquisite wine that he was tasting. Now, I've got to ask the question, what happened here from H2O, which is one of the simplest molecules that we know anything about, we change it into this. These are just some of the chemicals and fibers and sugars that are in ordinary wine. Here's some more. Here's some more. Something transpired where new matter was created. Are, are you catching this really quickly here? Now, it wasn't spectacular. There was none of this, let there be wine. There was no big stained glass voice or anything. It was just sort of quiet. He did this with his own thought process, made new matter. Now, if you know any kind of science, you'll know this is a breaking of the very fundamental law that you cannot bring new matter into existence. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. That's fundamental to all science. Well, here the creator was now bringing into existence some new matter, and it didn't take ages to happen. This was just a few minutes of filling up the pots with water, and then probably in the instant that they took the pitcher from the water pot to the governor of the feast, instantaneously there were sugars and fibers and acids and bases. Paul said, by him all things were created. Things in heaven, things in earth, invisible, 
visible thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. It doesn't really make any difference how you evaluate it. God was the creator. All things, and he's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me make this point before we go any farther. The one who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Is the same one who said, let there be light. It's the same person, same being, same deity, same God who loved you enough to give himself for you. It is the creator God who substituted himself for your sin and my sin and made it possible for us to be created after him in righteousness and true holiness. Jesus is the creator. All things were made by him. Now, in these latter days, he's spoken to us and given us a record of who he is. So the scripture is just very, very clear. There's no mistaking about this. It's not hard to understand. Maybe hard to believe, but it's not hard to understand. Creation in seven, ordinary. Well, the creation took place in six days, rested on the seventh day. No great ages in the scriptures. Even when you add up all the historical records, both in the biblical data and in the secular data, we only have records going back about 5,000 years. So from, in terms of provable data, we've got a very young, in the context of billions of years, a very young earth. And Jesus is the creator who demonstrated how he created Seven very particular times during his lifetime on earth. Well, the second reason is simply this. There just simply is no scientific evidence for any kind of evolutionary change happening. Now, now let's get our terms right. I'm not talking about a change from a little dog to a big dog. I'm not talking about different kinds of peoples. I'm not talking about different kinds of petunias. I'm talking about a petunia changing into a frog. I'm talking about a dog changing into a cat. There's no evidence for that kind of evolution anywhere. Now, the logic of those who refuse to believe that God is the creator says, well, since we can find different kinds of roses or petunias or dogs or cats, it's got to be that somewhere along the line over billions and billions of years, we can get a cat out of a dog. But there's no evidence for evolution there. So when the scriptures makes this declarative statement that every day that we have in front of us, every night that goes on, there's a language that's continually expressing this commentary that there really is nothing out there except a creator God who brought it into existence. Peter makes this comment, they're willfully ignorant. Some of the translations say they, they knowingly forget. Well, that's sort of the same thing. That means they know the data, but reject the information in favor of that which they want to believe. They're willfully forgetting. They willfully are ignorant of several things. That By the word of God, the heavens were of old, by his spoken authority. The earth that was different then, the earth was standing in the water, out of the water. That's a reference to day two. We know from the fossil record that in the history of the earth times past, the climate structure, the cosmology structure of the earth was very different. By the way, just as a kind of a major example, we have enormous coal deposits in Antarctica. Are you aware of that? Do you know what coal is made out of? Does everybody know that? Anybody know that? made out of plant materials. And when you dig up these coal 
through the core processes. They don't kind of mine coal in Antarctica. It's got thousands of feet of snow and ice on top of it, but you can go down there and pick up some of the fossil data. We have ferns in there and palm trees and bark and, yeah, plants, roses, petunias in Antarctica. Well, it's sure not that way now. So something was radically different, and we find from the information in Scripture that God destroyed the earth that existed then because the entire world population became rebellious toward its creator, and he essentially started all over again, and that's what Peter says. They just reject this information. They're willfully forgetting. They're willingly ignorant of the fact that the earth was destroyed by water. By the way, just a little piece of information. Everything that we call fossils today, well, I shouldn't say everything. 99% of all the fossils are in what we call sedimentary rock. Are you familiar with that term? Water-deposited rock. Fossils, dinosaurs, are in flood deposits. So when you look at the evidence across the planet what you see is an evidence of a worldwide flood covering the planet. Peter says they're willingly ignorant of that. Now, empirical science, you know that big word, empirical science? It just means that which you can test and prove and reproduce in a laboratory. Testable science, observable, testable, reproducible, repeatable science, demands a recent, a soon, not long ago creation. Here's those laws again. Matter can't be created and destroyed. This is a law as far as we know, any kind of law. The universe couldn't create itself. It couldn't generate its own matter. It couldn't do that. Laws of science say it can't do that. The second law says every time you use the energy that's available, some of it becomes unusable. It's an interning, an entropy. That's why things wear out. That's why things fall apart. That's why your car needs replacing and your room gets messy and you get wrinkles when you're 70. That's because things wear out and fall apart. That's a second law. We can stave off that second law for a period of time by taking energy from other sources and putting it into a source that we want to preserve, but sooner or later, it gets you. And that applies to suns and molecules and people. The universe is dying. Dying? Dying? A very slow death, and that means it can't be infinitely old, certainly can't be very old, even though they talk about the universe being 13-something billion years old. No, the evidence doesn't verify that. When we make these calculations about the entropy processes, they don't give us those kinds of answers. Third law is simply that everything has a cause. Something makes something happen, and the event that causes another event has to be just as smart or just as big or just as powerful or just as, usually greater because of the second law, the effect is never greater than its cause. So the cause of the universe has got to be some sort of an infinite chain of causes like eternal matter or something, or it's got to be really an all-powerful, all-knowing initial cause. It's really the only logic you could come to. That's why the two systems of thinking are branched out this way. The Bible's pretty clear, and what we can test and reproduce in science doesn't verify this so-called evolutionary cycle of things because design 
Evidence of engineering and planning and structure and purpose is everywhere you look. Things don't just happen. They are put together with an amazing ability to function. And the more we know about their function, the more we understand about how life processes, how the DNA works, how, oh my goodness, the more we know, the more staggering becomes our awareness that things don't just happen. There's design and complexity and majesty and wonder in everything. There's no such thing as a simple cell. Nothing simple about a cell. It's complex and wonderful and awe-inspiring. There's all kinds of these things. Everywhere we look, there's different kinds of intelligence. There's different kinds of plans. I showed this to the Sunday School Hour, but you need to remember that everything we look at today, everything we can observe, and that's what scientists are supposed to be dealing with, that which you can observe, that which you can predict and test and reproduce. That's what scientists are about. Everything that we look at in our universe today, everything that we can see, and even that which we can imagine, identifies stability, preservation. We do not see things coming into existence like this. Just don't. Yeah, we can kind of laugh at it because it's stupid. That just aren't anything like this anywhere. We don't see these kinds of things anywhere. They're just not there. By the way, most dinosaurs are kind of small, by the way. Did you know that? Here's a dinosaur. It's about the size of a little bird. Why don't we see a hummiosaurus somewhere? Well, they're just not there. When they talk about these things as though they really are, like dinosaurs evolved into birds, well, no, no, there's just no evidence of these things happening. What we see is this process of stability. Yes, there's variety within the various kinds of animals and plant life, but they're not changing into something else. There's variety, but there is no shifting from roses into frogs into dogs into people. There just is none of that going on anywhere that's observable. Not in present history, not in the fossil record. Oh, there are in the Smithsonian Institution, of course, and in the textbooks, but there's not any in real life. Reason number one, the scripture is very clear. Reason number two, testable science, empirical science doesn't support the evolutionary thinking process. And reason number three is that there's no evidence of this happening in the past. Now that's a biggie because most scientists just, well, we don't see it now, but it must have happened in the past. Well, the only place we got the past to look at is in the fossil record. And that really every time we look at it, we do not see these fossil evidences. We find some small evidences in the fossil record of singular cell life, mostly algae, at least we think that's what it might be. It's kind of sparse, by the way. But what we suddenly see in the fossil record, about 95% of all the fossil records are clams. Starfish and jellyfish, marine invertebrates, they're all over everywhere, tops of the mountains, bottom of the canyons, in them, everywhere. It looks like just the whole ocean bottom was just dumped. Huh, seems like I read something about that somewhere. But we see these things just like we have them today. They're jellyfish, just like jellyfish. The clams are just like clams. The starfish, just like clams. Yeah, there's few extinct ones like the trilobites. They're kind of cool, by the way. I wish there were some trilobites around today. They look like they... Remember those little things on Star Trek that kind of waddle around? And, yeah, well, okay. 
But what they appear in the fossil record is suddenly, just like this, fully formed, very complex, magnificent creatures with an exterior skeleton, marine invertebrates, where the skeleton's on the outside. And then we jump from the clam to fish. Boy, that's a huge change from where the skeleton is on the outside to where the skeleton is on the inside. A very, very different kind of creature, and we've got billions of clams and billions of fish in the fossil record, but no clamitians or anything like that. Nothing in between. What we see in the fossil record is exactly what we see today. So there is no evidence here of anything changing into something else. It's just like we see it. Yes, there's some extinct ones. Glory be, I'm kind of glad some of these critters are gone. They were some humongous sea creatures out there. Ooh, we got, we got the skeleton of a Mosasaur in our ICR headquarters, and that thing is one more scary dude. I'm just really glad they're gone. What about these flying things, these flying reptiles? We see them in the fossil record, but they're there fully formed just like we... There's nothing in between, nothing where the fifth finger turned into this long bone of a wing. Nothing, just exactly like that, fully formed, completely formed in the record, nothing in between, nor before or after. And there's several different kinds of critters that are flying reptiles. Some of them are humongous, some of them are small, but there's nothing like them anywhere else. So you've got to ask the question, why are we hearing these stories that don't match the evidence? Well, the basic reason is, same reason Adam and Eve said, I don't want God to rule over me. I don't want that kind of a boss. I don't want a boss that can tell me what to do. I want to do my own thing. I want to be like God. In fact, if you look at most of the religions that are outside of the Scripture, that's exactly what they're promising. You can become a God. You can be just like God, and He won't be able to tell you what to do. So we've got to ask the question then, are these really necessary ages? There really isn't any evidence, not in recorded history and the fossil record. Well, the question always comes, well, what about worldwide processes like radiometric dating or like sea force splitting or like continental drift or some of these other big things you hear about? Where is this evidence for these billions of years? The scientists called it the deep time. Where is evidence, empirical, testable, repeatable, observable evidence. Where is it? You always hear about carbon-14. Well, to begin with, there's not enough of it in the atmosphere. It's still building up, which means it's really not very old. Carbon-14 is in every carbon-based thing, plants and animals. The magnetic field of the Earth is decaying. We've measured it pretty carefully for the last 150 years. And we know how fast it's deteriorating. And when you do the mathematical calculations 10,000 years ago, the magnetic strength would have been about equal to a magnetic star. Kind of ripped the iron right out of your bloodstream. Wouldn't work really too well. So we kind of invent another theory. Well, the magnetic field's been <coughs> flip-flopped every now and again. Well, that's a nice story. There really isn't any serious evidence for that. How about salt in the oceans? The alt ocean has salt in it, but there's not enough. If the earth is billions of years old, the earth ought to be a salt lick. But it's not. 
And when you measure the salt quantity and the amount of salt that's increasing in the ocean base, you know how rapid it's going on. We're measuring it very carefully, and we know it can't be more than a million years old at the most, at the outside. So we just kind of reject that data. How about the erosion of the continents? We can measure how fast the sand is getting eroded into the ocean base and filling up the oceans. We can measure that, and we know that it's not. It doesn't fit. So we don't talk about it. We talk about things that tend to give us a deep time date. Now remember, radiometric dating has only been around about 100 years, and it's only measurable in heat-related rocks like granites and basalts and lavas and things like that. It's not measurable in sedimentary rocks where the fossils are. Crystals get broken down. You can measure the gases or the minerals that are reduced in the, in the uh, crystalline bases. Can't measure sedimentary rocks where the fossils are, so you have to find a intrusion somewhere where there's some heat-related rock base, usually a basalt intrusion of some sort. So you can locate these sills or dikes that are in the sides of the canyons and measure them a little bit. Now, the clock should be ticking at the same rate. If the clock's right, they ought to be giving us the same measuring stick. You read in the textbooks that it's just a proof that the earth is very old. We did a number of these tests ourselves. Don't have the time to go into it this morning. But suffice it to say, when we did the testing and sent the rock materials off to the same laboratories these other guys used, said, give us the dates. We dated these dye-based sills in the Grand Canyon. One measurement gave us an age of about 841 million years. Another one gave us a little over a billion years. Another one gave us a billion point two years. Another one gave us 1.4 billion years. Same rock. Same lab giving us different dates by an order of magnitude here, almost twice the level. Now, one asks the questions, how come you're getting a different date for the same rock from the same lab? And the answer is something's wrong with the assumptions here. Should be ticking at the same rate, should give the same age. I don't have the time to go through all the data here, but it's consistent. And it's been noted in the secular literature for a long time but never makes it on PBS, never makes it in the high school or the college. It just is one of those kind of secrets. Something's wrong with the assumptions here. Science really confirms what we see in the scriptures, these basic laws of science. The evolution itself is not being observed anywhere. The processes that we can measure are telling us the planet's not very old. And when we try to find these slower clocks, they give us such widely discordant races rates, we know that something's wrong with the thinking process. Something's not jiving here. That which is consistent is the message of Scripture. The evidence, really, the evidence is pretty clear. Science, testable, observable, repeatable science confirms what the Scripture says. Scripture's pretty clear. Science tells us both currently and secondarily from a historical perspective that the Bible is pretty accurate. Another reason is simply this. The character that is revealed about God in the Scripture just forbids this idea of evolution. The one overriding characteristic of God that we see in Scripture is His holiness. And everything about God is, as it is revealed to us in the Scripture is that He is an unchangeable, unstoppable, unvariable, holy being. 
Well, that means God can't lie, so when he speaks, he's got to speak the truth. It means when he acts, he's got to do the truth. It means when he does anything, he can't distort the information so that we get the wrong information, the wrong conclusion. He just cannot create anything that's a lie. He just can't do it. His nature is such that it will forbid him from doing that. Even his love for you and I had to be dealt with according to his holiness. That's why the Lord Jesus had to die for you and for me. You see, everything about God's nature is such that we know he could not counter his own existence by doing that which undescribes who he is. And he's known as an all-knowing God. That means he knows everything about everything. All the purpose and order flow from this. Every decision that God makes is unchangeable. That's why when he finished his work on each day, he said, this is good. This is the way I ordered it. This is exactly what I intended for it to be. And one day he's going to restore it that way after we have ruined it totally. Then he's going to bring us in a condition where everything, even the molecules, work according to his plan. We loosely call that heaven. Well, everything we know about God means he can't experiment since he knows what to do. He's got to do it since he knows how the best is. He can't do something inferior. He has to do that which is good. When God creates, he's got to focus on the ultimate restitution of all things, That's why the scripture says he made the worlds. He's now upholding everything by the authority of who he is and will ultimately inherit everything. Paul says everything came of him. It is implemented through him. It ultimately will be to him. Everything is focused on bringing glory to who he is. When we see the crescendo of all things in the book of Revelation, what's going on here is the whole of creation is saying, you are worthy to receive glory and power and honor and majesty because you created. And it is the creation all through Scripture that identifies his majesty. Well, the last reason is simply this. God's whole purpose excludes this random purposeless, non-directive, experimental idea of evolution. If evolution is true, if it is true, then death is normal. Death is a good thing. Death is what we should expect. Death is what weeds out the inferior. Death is that which produces the better thing. If evolution is true, death brings about the best That creates some real serious problems with the biblical information. If death became or came before sin, and according to evolutionary theology, death has been around for billions and billions of years in all kinds of life forms. But the scripture says death is the result of one man's sin, and death passed on everything that exists because all have sinned. Well, that passage isn't true if evolution is true. Wages of sin is death, the scripture says. Now, well, if that's not true, and according to evolution it's not true, death is a good thing, it's not a punishment, then you've got to discard that piece of information in the scripture. And really more dangerous than that 
Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That is, the whole message of scripture is that it was necessary for him to die. And, of course, the evolution says, well, that's silly. The death of Christ is at best something of martyr for a lost cause. Christ was once offered to bear the sins for the many. The scripture says, no, that's not true. Evolution says that's just simply not accurate. And more than that, God really blew it because Isaiah tells us that it pleased God the Father to execute his Son on our behalf. Boy, I talk about a colossal mistake if evolution is true. God so loved the world, the Scripture tells us, that he gave his only begotten Son, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's just simply a silly statement. In fact, all of Scripture is foolishness if Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are not true. Jesus is certainly not the creator if evolution is true, and so the things about the creator relationship and the fact that Jesus is the creator, that's simply just not accurate in Scripture. You can throw those verses out as well. Because all of those miracles that we see in John's Gospel and other places in Scripture, they're just simply a lie if evolution is true. Jesus was really just a victim because... Well, for crying out loud, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But if evolution is true, that scripture is just not true at all. He's just a flat liar. Are you getting the point? You can't have it both ways. By the way, guys, the only people that try to harmonize these two worldviews are Christians. The evolutionists never do this. The atheists never do this. It's only sort of well-meaning Christians think, well, science has proven that the earth is old, so Genesis must be wrong, so we just got to accommodate science. Well, if you've been a scientist for any length of time, you know that science makes some pretty horrible mistakes. Science of today is vastly different than science of 500 years ago. Do you know what it's going to be like 500 years from now? We're going to laugh at some of the stupid things we thought were true. See, indifference to Genesis sets the stage for selective obedience. Just pick and choose the things in Scripture you like or don't like. And when you ignore the Creator, it sort of shifts the whole reverence of who we worship away from God to me. That's why the songs say, I'm the master of my destiny and the captain of my ship. That's why you ladies use L'Oreal, because you're worth it. Us guys can have a Burger King our way. You see, it refocuses our worship to ourselves. Salvation begins with trust in Jesus Christ. He who rejects me and does not receive my word has one that will judge him. The word that I've spoken, that will judge him in the last day. Hmm. Can you imagine Charles Darwin standing up against the Creator and say, But I thought. Beloved, may I suggest to you that the one to whom you and I will ultimately answer is your Creator, whether you believe it or not is your Lord and King and Master, whether you allow him to be or not, 
if you will graciously react and respond to his gift of grace, you will be created after him in righteousness and true holiness. And then when the world is remade in perfection, you and I will enjoy an eternity as his children. But can you imagine those who have followed the broad way into destruction? Wow. There's a passage in Proverbs that says their fear will descend on them like a whirlwind. Well, we've covered a lot of ground real quickly this morning. I wish we had the time to go into so much more. But may I simply suggest this. Scripture's pretty clear. And everything about testable and observable science verifies what's in Scripture. There's no reason to reject it. God has made it open and available to the simplest or to the most brilliant. It doesn't really matter to God. His salvation is available for all. Boy, to reject what he has made possible is the ultimate of rejections. We have the privilege this day in this hour to acknowledge the Creator and ultimately, of course, our Savior and our Lord. One day He will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We who have found grace and faith through what He has offered will have the privilege of being a joint heir with the Creator. Father, thank You for the few moments we've been able to share together this morning. Use us at your pleasure, grant us insights, we pray. May we please you for having been together in worship this morning. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.